Welcome back to uh, another episode of Believe in the Press Road. Jonah Siegel here in Seattle, Washington on a gloomy Tuesday morning, bright and early. And joining me is one of the longtime scribes from the Globe and Mail, originally from the Globe and Mail, spent a lot of time on the airwaves at Rogers as well, uh, frequent guest and late career sports media guru, if you will, David Schultz. David, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Jonah. How, uh, how was that introduction? Did I, did I, did I mess oh, up I, I, If you had a camera on me, you'd see me blushing right now. <laughs> so you, you're a, an Ontario boy, grew, yes. up, grew up in the, in the greater GTA, right? Uh, no, I did not. I grew up in uh, the Niagara Peninsula, actually. Some people call that the greater GTA. You're in the Golden Horseshoe, right? I was in the Golden Horseshoe, yes. And um, became a writer almost right after college, is that correct? Well, right after college, yeah, yeah. I, uh, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, but once I did, I said, "That's I don't want to do anything else. I just want to be a sports writer. So I started working on that as soon as I could. And it was sports right from the get-go. Yes, um, I had a rather unhappy sojourn into news at the Globe from about December 1990 through December 1991, when a former publisher of ours, uh, whose name lives in infamy as Roy McGarry, uh, finally accomplished his dream of basically eliminating the sports department. And the funny thing is, he reduced it from about 30 people to five, and that's not even as bad, as bad as we thought it was then. It's not nearly as what's happened now. So, but, you know, back in those days, newspapers actually made money. So what he did then was, was a huge, set off huge shockwaves. He basically got rid of uh, all but a handful of sports writers who just sort of wrote on, you know, various different topics. And, and so me and a few others, uh, unhappy, equally unhappy others, wound up in the news department uh, for a year. And uh, I wound up as the justice reporter because uh, when I was sent to news, uh, Kirk Macon, who was the justice reporter, took a leave of absence to write a book that you may have heard of called Red Rum, the Innocent. And it was about the Guy Paul Moran uh, case. And now he was uh, railroaded by the authorities into uh, a murder, or, you know, being charged with a murder that he didn't, uh, he didn't commit. And I believe it's a murder, that, uh, child murder that remains unsolved to this day. So I had uh, a time as a justice reporter. Um, I like to think I did a couple of decent stories, but I really was quite unhappy uh, doing that and it was easily my most unproductive year at the globe perhaps there's managers there that would beg to differ but uh, anyway that's my opinion <laughs> so you you did a stint out in calgary as well in 1979 what was that like well that was a lot of fun uh that was my first real job out of university um i got it turns out i just started phoning and writing sports editors across the country of the bigger papers. And the only one who gave me the time of day was George Billich, who was the sports editor of the, uh, the Calgary Herald. And 
being young and stupid, I'm sorry to say, I never, it took me a long time to really realize and appreciate what George did for me. And he gave me, along with Steve Simmons, uh, Al Mackey, and a few others, their first crack at, you know, a major market. Uh, and this was right out of university. So uh, I was very lucky. I happened to be in the right, you know, just make the right call at the right time. Because Calgary was experiencing its big oil boom in the late 70s. That sort of ended in the early 80s uh, when the Pierre Trudeau brought in the, was the National Energy Act. But anyway, uh, so George was hiring and sports was booming in Calgary because within a year of me landing there in January of 79, um, the, Cal or the Atlanta Flames moved north to Calgary. Calgary got a, uh, if you remember the North American Soccer League, of course. they got a, uh, a, first an indoor team and then an outdoor team. They're called the Calgary Boomers, as I recall. Nelson Scalbania, who brought the uh, Flames or actually put the deal together to bring the Flames to Calgary, he also brought the, uh, the soccer team there. Although in the end, Nelson really didn't have any money. <laughs> He'd have been a perfect owner of the uh, Phoenix Coyotes. But so he sort of ran out of gas. But there were plenty of rich guys in Calgary uh, who stepped in and, uh, you know, took over the, the Flames and uh, um, the Seaman Brothers and uh, Ralph, oh, Ralph Skirfield, I believe his name was, really nice man who uh, uh, was, a, I think he got rich. They all got rich in the oil patch anyway. And they had real, real cash. So they, uh, yeah, and uh, I was able to, within a year, uh, walk into the flame speed. Uh, I went from the Herald to the Sun to manage it. And that first year of the flames, uh, three of the four beat writers covering them were me, Steve Simmons, and Eric Tehachek. Wow. Who would have guessed it? Yeah, and the three of us wound up living together at one point. We were all single, young and... Well, in my case, still talk stupid. to each other today. Oh yeah, we're all still very good friends. Steve, Steve, and Eric remain, uh, you know, among my best friends. And we've been, yeah, we've been friends since that day. Al Mackey as well. Al, uh, Al worked at the uh, Herald for a number of years, and then later on, all we used to talk about was uh, how we were going to get back to Toronto, go, you know, get to the big time, and. Uh, as it turned out, I was the first guy to do it, but that's only because I, uh, I managed to land a job on the desk as a copy editor and uh, page designer. It was really hard to uh, break into the Toronto market as a reporter, so I kind of took the back door. <laughs> and then later on, Steve joined me. He got hired by Wayne Parrish over at the Toronto Sun. I was at the Globe by then, and uh, I eventually after a couple of years moved off the sports desk and back into reporting. And then, so yeah, we were all, Eric sort of rather wisely, I think decided to stay in Calgary. He had a, you know, really good setup at the Calgary Herald for many years. And so, uh, yeah, and, and we were all covering the NHL. So, you know, we were all always in touch. So it was pretty easy to maintain the friendship. So you've written a bunch of books. Um, I wouldn't say a bunch. Well, <laughs> it's three, I think. <laughs> I got four in front of me. Four. We're, well, well, let's see. Uh, there was, I did the oh, there's book. Three. Sorry, there's three. There's three. You're, one of them's written twice under two different names. Um, two different but, names? Well, so it says Tales from the Toronto Maple Leafs in 2007. 
Oh then, yeah, yeah. And then Tales from the Toronto Maple Leafs locker room in 2012. Yeah, that that publisher, the original publisher, went bankrupt, and then eventually its assets were bought by another company that decided um, they could continue. They they brought out a couple of later editions of the book, which is basically a set of anecdotes about the Toronto Maple Leafs, and uh, on a couple of occasions. I think one to include the Brian Burke years and one to include the Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner arrivals. Uh, I wrote a, some updates and they okay. reissued the book a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. So your first book was with Bill Houston. Yeah. That was on Alan Eagleson. So I'm just curious why there wasn't a follow-up called like email etiquette with Bob Goodnow. Oh, <laughs> probably because the Eagleson book really never sold many copies uh yeah. we so didn't whatever, exactly get rich on that you're listening to believe in the press row with uh, jonah siegel and, and longtime globe and mail reporter david schultz um whatever happened to bill houston well bill took the first of uh, the series of you know the last in over the last 10 11 years there was a series of buyouts at the globe and mail and bill left in the first round he decided um to uh to to leave um and that was a that was the best buyout of the bunch i think he guys like him who had been there for at least 30 years wound up with a year and a half pay i think and it made sense for bill because i believe his wife at the time had some health problems and the doctors recommended that she move to a, a more dry climate and so uh, and I'm I'm guessing a bit here because I haven't talked to Bill in a long, long time. Um, so they began splitting the year in, I think, Scottsdale and Ontario. Oh. So it sort of made sense for Bill uh, to move on. Although I think by that time, Bill had had his uh, fill of the Globe and Mail. Gotcha. So two other things, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things that come to mind when I think of David Schultz. Um, one of them, obviously, is Bob McCallum. We'll get there. Um, I'm curious, do you still get holiday cards from Reginald T. Baum? No. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I, I think the Phoenix fans, who all hated me so actively, because uh, I had the nerve to point out the flaws of the franchise and the ownership, uh, no, no, nobody's ever sent me any cards. And... Uh, and even the uh, the social media hatred seems to have died down in the last few years. Probably because now, I mean, uh, you got to give Gary Bettman credit. That guy is, there's nobody like him in finally pulling owners with actual money out of a hat. And it appears now he's got a guy somehow talked him into buying the team. And, it, and it's someone who actually has money. So <laughs> now all they need to do is figure out that arena situation. Uh, and, and even then, you know, profit's not guaranteed, but uh, I suppose they'd be in a little better shape than they are now. How crazy was it to you to be sitting in that court, in a, in a bankruptcy courtroom in wherever it was, Glendale, Arizona, where like, how strange. Well, I was in Phoenix. The trial was in downtown Phoenix. How crazy was that for you? It was, a, it was, a, you know, it, it wasn't like a total circus because let's face it, um, the Coyotes had trouble drumming up interest in their own city, 
But there was quite a bit of press there from, uh, from Canada, particularly in the, uh, the first phase of the trial. Um, and I, I remember sitting in a bar with the group, the whole Canadian gang of reporters, and that's when I kind of realized how big the story became because sitting across from me at this big table was, um, oh Lord, her name's gone out of my head now. She was the main anchor for the CTV News. Um, oh gracious, I can't remember her name. <laughs> Lisa Laflamme. Okay. And, and I'm thinking, good Lord, Lisa Laflamme is down here on this silly hockey team bank story. I mean, this is just insane. Now, I will say that when I first started covering the story, and, and the one thing I can claim is that I was the first guy to really, you know, take a hard look at the, uh, at the coyotes. And this goes back to the, the uh, several years, probably seven or eight years earlier when, uh, when they were being sold to Steve Ellman, who I was quickly told had no money, but he was the only sucker in sight. And so they were <laughs> gonna be sold. And in fact, the previous owner was the guy who told me, he said, what this team needs is a billionaire owner because he said, you've gotta, you, you've gotta have the ability to just build your own building. Because at that time, Scottsdale, the town of Scottsdale was one of the few smart communities in North America and was telling the Coyotes, no, we're not going to hand you an arena free and let you keep all the revenue. We're interested in doing a deal, but it's got to be fair for us too. Uh, this was unheard of. <laughs> Imagine that being right. fair to the town instead of just emptying its pockets. And so he wasn't getting Elman any, Elman certainly couldn't uh, afford to build the thing himself. He was probably, by my estimation, worth about 50 million. I mean, he wasn't penniless, but he also was out of his league. And uh, um, Richard, oh, good Lord, now I, I, this is how bad I am with names. His last name is not coming to me, but he was the owner. He's the guy that moved the team from, uh, from Winnipeg. And he told me, he said, um, I'm worth $300 million and I cannot afford to keep this team because I can't afford to build an arena by myself. And that's the only way this team can survive because what that team needed and still needs is an arena in either downtown Phoenix or Scottsdale. Well, the big arena in downtown Phoenix was, wasn't suitable for hockey then, nor is the one that replaced it. So Scottsdale made a lot of sense because the majority of their fans, and these were wealthy fans too, by the way, lived in Scottsdale. But Scottsdale wasn't going to, you know, just roll over and uh, write a check. So this was a slow process. But that always stuck with me, what the Coyotes owner said to me. He said, uh, my accountant told me I have to sell this team or I'll have to go back to work. <laughs> he owned a big health company in the U.S. and had people paid to run it while he enjoyed a life of leisure. And, uh, and he said, I certainly don't want to go back to work. But he says, I'm going to have to sell it to this guy. I don't really want to but he's the only guy in sight. And that's exactly what happened because Elman talked these hillbillies in uh, Glendale into handing him a, an arena and plus all the money. And it was an insane deal. Everybody knew it at the time because uh, if you know the area in Phoenix at all, 
the middle of nowhere. Uh, Scottsdale is in the what they call the East Valley on the east side of Phoenix, and that's where all the really wealthy people live. Glendale was on the west, is in the West Valley on the west side of Phoenix, and that was a at that time a very much a blue collar community, and there wasn't a lot of money there. But the town council was convinced if they could uh, talk sports teams and leagues and whoever into coming there and, and they would build uh, stadiums and arenas for them, that that's how they would prosper. And they very nearly uh, put the, you know, bankrupted the town in doing it. So basically Elman moved the team uh, on the opposite side of the region from its fans. And they just said, uh, these rich guys that said, who bought all the club seats, bought the boxes said, we're not driving an hour and a half on a weeknight to, you know, watch hockey we're not that invested in it so it all dried up now whether or not they ever get you know are able to pull off an arena deal in the next few years to go back to either downtown phoenix or into scottsdale um whether or not they ever get those people back i mean it's been a long long time i don't know but you know at least now they got a guy with some dollars and uh, it'd be entirely up to how long he wants to keep um pouring money into the franchise um, I wouldn't count on it being a long time because uh, the, if you remember, the Florida Six uh, Panthers have had a succession of owners with actual money, and they soon got tired of writing checks for $20 million every year. So you know, even and rich still, guys get tired Still of nobody that. goes to those games. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I, I think in the long run, unless they somehow – pull off a miraculous arena situation. And even then it's not guaranteed. I, I think the Cowboys are, or the Coyotes are always going to be uh, something of a headache. So let's transition. So your last book is, is certainly the most relevant, I think, today. Uh -huh. um, the, 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 the sports world in Canada, and even I would say the sports business world in the U.S., you know, got a got a hell of a shock one morning when when word broke that Rogers had bought exclusivity to the National Hockey League television rights in Canada. Yeah. Now, before we proceed on that, I, one thing where I got yapping there, I, I left out the main point in that whole thing about the Coyotes, which is why I started covering it in the first place and why people like Lisa LaFlemme were down there at the start of the trial. And that was the Coyotes were certainly seen as a team that would bring, you know, come back to Canada and it would bring the NHL back at that time, either to Winnipeg or Quebec. And no, wasn't it? Balsilli, Balsilli was circling to bring them to Hamilton. Yeah, that's, well, well, I think most people knew he wouldn't be allowed to ever bring them to Hamilton, but, but he, he was, got, you know, he, he certainly tipped the whole thing over. Wasn't it Philly's grand scheme to send the he had been trying to buy a team and wasn't it his grand scheme to knock the team into bankruptcy to force the sale to him? Yeah, it actually wasn't his grand scheme. It was the, a lawyer named uh, Richard Rodier had thought that up. But it was his um, it was his lawyer, wasn't it? Well, he became his lawyer originally when Rodier dreamed up this idea. I believe he went to Melnick, who because I think Melnick didn't own a team then, and uh, you know. Pardon? Does he own one now? <laughs> well, this is back before Melnick got hit by uh, the falling stock price of the drug company he founded. Plus, I think what really did him in was the divorce. 
Um, but anyhow, uh, Melnick was interested in buying a team, and, and Rodier had thought this up concerning the Cowboys, and I believe uh, Melnick was the first guy he approached, and Melnick said, uh, thought about it and said no, and then um, Balsilli was another obvious target because he had already tried to buy the, uh, the Nashville Predators and the Pittsburgh Penguins, all with an eye to moving them to Hamilton. And so, yeah, he – Balsilli was a guy who loved to take, you know, audacious gambles, and and he was a really obstinate guy who was willing to stick with it. So he that was starting, it was sort of a match made in heaven. That Balsilli loved the idea, and then, and away they went. But that uh, that was the only reason anyone. I mean, let's be honest. That's the only reason it was getting more than the average beat writer out there was it had a massive Canadian play to it, and behind yeah, that, it, yeah, that's behind, that's my point. That's yeah, that's why I brought that up with, again. Is that uh, if there hadn't been a chance that the team would move to Canada, I wouldn't have been allowed, you know, nearly the sort of time I spent on that story by my bosses. That was, I just, I recognized at the time that this would be a huge story in Canada because of the chance of a team uh, uh, moving to Canada, another team coming to Canada, because that was a sensitive issue in Canada. And then once Balsilli uh, lost out, the story remained hot because Winnipeg and Quebec still were in the running to get the Coyotes uh, because they remained in trouble. So that story had legs for a long, long time, simply because of the, uh, you know, another team for Canada angle. And, uh, you know, the other team that got to Canada first, of course, was the Atlanta Thrashers went to Winnipeg. But, uh, well, Quebec City lives on and hopes, uh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe someday. No <laughs> I wouldn't hold my breath. I don't. I don't. I don't think that's ever going to happen. And anyway, it's, and it's so sorry to interrupt you. You were no you were asking me about uh, about the whole hockey rights thing. So let let's pause for one second. It's Jonas Siegel. You're listening to Believe in in the Press Row here. We have David Schultz in Toronto, a longtime reporter from the Globe and Mail. And uh, here's something that I bet you never thought you'd hear on the airwaves, David. But today's show is brought to you by our friends at. Uh, the Lawnmower 3.0 brought to you by Manscaped.com. Uh, and as I said to you off there, no, I do not have free samples for our guests. Um, well, that's, it, that's very disappointing. I know. Um, I'm supposed to tell you that this is your pubic service announcement. After more than 18 months of research and development, the Manscaped engineering team has confirmed they have successfully created the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created. This new trimmer was just released only moments ago, and we are the first to confirm the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 manscaping trimmer is now available for purchase. Today, we are happy to get you 20% off and free shipping with the code BLEAV. That's B L E A V at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code B L E A V. What a great lead-in to Rogers buying the exclusive rights to the National Hockey League. When you first heard... Yeah, Rogers certainly took a haircut, right? Ha -ha. Yes. <laughs> so when you first heard that they did this, what was your thought? I was as, well, I was as flabbergasted as anybody else because uh, no one ever saw them coming. I mean, right up to the morning of the announcement, Stories were appearing in the media that uh, TSN had actually, you know, scored the big deal and that um, the CBC was still along for the ride and that they'd hang on to Hockey Night in Canada. 
And uh, so this announcement that Rogers had bought the whole thing and that CBC and uh, Bell were out, that was like, it was a thunder, you know, just like a big burst of thunder. And I was as, yeah, I was as shocked as anybody else. So everyone now can grit their teeth and say, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to us at Rogers. Um, not since sliced bread has there been anything better than this deal. But do you think with the benefit of hindsight, if they could undo it and not do it again, they would do so? Well, I would, I would expect so, yeah. I mean, just, just judged on uh, probably several hundred, couple hundred people who lost their jobs would, as a result of this would, uh, would, would be proof of that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know what, in a way, I, I can't blame them. Uh, you know, Keith Pelly was a, he's a, was a risk taker, and, and, but I think he always believed that it was a, a calculated risk and, and one worth taking. But you know what? In their defense, I will say that they had the worst luck after they signed that deal that, that you could imagine. Um, nothing went right for them in the first three years. And then when it did go right in, was it the third year when the Leafs finally got good? It didn't last. And, and it turned again. And, and so... But that's what happens when you take enormous risks like that. The, the slightest misfortune can do you in. And, and that's basically what happened. Because if you go back to when they, um, they signed the deal, you could sort of convince yourself maybe it is a risk worth taking. Because the Leafs, if you remember, and a lot of people don't nowadays because of the way things turned out, they were on the upswing at the time. That was the year they almost and should have beaten Boston in that game seven in uh, 2013. Uh, they had the 4-1 lead in the third period and blew it and lost in overtime. If they'd have won that game, who knows what had happened. Well, although you could probably tell yourself that, in, in retrospect, was the worst thing that could have happened to the Leafs winning that game because that team actually wasn't that good, and it led to the team they got now. Uh, and they, you know, people may not be happy with the way they're playing right this minute, but I still think the way this current team's made up has a far better chance of winning a cup than the 2013 team ever did. But in any event, at that point then, the, the Leafs were on the upswing. So things looked up for ratings. The, the Leafs drive the ratings, as everybody know, knows, because they're in the most populated area in Canada. And, uh, and the other Canadian teams weren't that bad either. And then, of course, what no, something else nobody else saw the following season, in the words of Brian Burke, of course, was the 18-wheeler went right off the cliff and Rogers went with it. So, uh, you know, and, and not only that, not only did the Leafs get bad, but every other Canadian team got bad. And, and you know, that's a group of six and then later seven teams you're talking about. How, you know, how often do you see that happen, that a group of half a dozen teams suddenly gets bad together? So they did have a, you know, a, a good stretch of bad luck. But trust me, there were plenty of times that Rogers shot themselves in the foot as well. I mean, all that stuff going on with Ron McLean and George Strombolopoulos and, you know, glitzing up the broadcasts, uh, that all just made a bad situation worse. But isn't it just really simple that they bought too much content and that hockey, well, while hockey is beloved in Canada, 
people are really truly just fans of their team and that the average fan who they need to tune in a lot is just sitting there watching their team play and doesn't have a whole lot of interest in other games during the week. Like, isn't that what it really boils down to? I, yeah, I, I do. I, you're absolutely correct. Um, I think, you know, bad luck aside, that was the major reason why this thing didn't fly. Um, there's, and that's also why Bell in their negotiations, even though they, they were willing to end up paying for all the rights, they never saw themselves as broadcasting all those games. They had planned, they were going to sell off games to, uh, CBC and whoever, because they figured, rightly so, that, you know, there's a limit on to how much hockey Canada wants to see. Whereas the Rogers guys thought, we got the best content going. People can't get enough of hockey. Well, as it turns out, yeah, they can. And I remember in that first year, uh, doing uh, the first time I did a story on ratings, the eye-opener for me was when I got the detailed ratings for every game. Um, those kind of games that Rogers thought they could sell, like for example, when Chicago with Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane would play a midweek game against the Pittsburgh Penguins with Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin, they thought that would draw a lot of eyeballs, like nearly as many as would watch a Leaf game. Well, no, they didn't. And they, they drew less than half of that sometimes. And that to me was an eye opener. That told me right away, uh, you know, but, that, but that's the there marquee. is a limit to. But that's you know, a marquee game. With yeah, all, and, and that's with all due respect. When when Columbus is playing Nashville, and and I'm not taking shots at either at either team, either market. But when those two teams are battling it out on a Wednesday night, the average fan from you know from from Nova Scotia to Victoria doesn't care, and they certainly don't care. And those are the killers, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you can't sell a marquee game like that, you're in trouble. And the other mistake they made, they thought the Sunday night games would, you know, which featured Canadian teams would be, a, a, you know, hometown hockey. That was a big surprise to them how badly that's done. But then if you thought about it, it's like, wait a minute, no. Canada watches hockey on Saturday night. And so in most instances, let's speak generally here, um, the women in Canadian households are not as big a hockey fans as the men. So let's say they're willing to sit through Ron and Don and a Saturday and the Leafs or the Habs, whoever on a Saturday night, but they're not willing because Sunday night's a big uh, TV night, uh, you know, other kinds of program. They're not willing to give up both nights of the weekend to sit and watch hockey. So, you Especially know, I just, not, but I'm sorry to interrupt. But especially if it's not your team, this yeah. isn't, this isn't yeah. the National Football League, right? Right, like, and chances are, because it was a back-to-back -back night, it wouldn't be your team playing. Right. And, and so, you know, it was, yeah, once you thought about it, yeah, it makes sense that the, the ratings would be less than half of what you'd get on a, or maybe even sometimes a quarter of what you'd get on a primetime Saturday night game. So it was a doomed philosophy to begin with. Yeah. That was eviscerated by the fact of really bad luck that you talked about. That's my, yeah. that's my, and, that's my conclusion. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. I agree. Um, it, uh, when you look back on it, it's like, uh, I guess, how did we ever think this thing, 
and and all the other stuff that they talked up like the the digital rights and the online you know millennials watching online well that all blew up too because millennials viewing habits are so different than ours or mine you know like uh, my generation will sit and watch a game on a big screen. That's what we like. Millennials don't want to do that unless it's, you know, they proved in the playoffs they're willing to do that if there's something on the line. And I must add, if it was their team, uh, they you, you'll get the millennials. But on the average, you know, weeknight hockey game, they're not going to sit and watch it. They'll watch a little bit of it. But what they'll do the following morning is watch the highlights on YouTube or whatever. Right. And, and that – just disrupt the, the whole model like okay yeah you can buy ads on youtube for your highlights but you're not going to get the same kind of money just ask the newspaper owners about you know <laughs> traditional advertising versus online advertising revenue and you're not going to make the same kind of money off those sort of things as you would from tv ads so yeah the whole the whole thing was just doomed so it it goes kerflui and the result is huh, an industry shit kicking like like we've never seen before um, yeah though there was one other factor in all this too is that rogers is a public company so the share price is the most important thing of all and if your division is not pulling its weight there's going to be trouble and trouble is layoffs because uh, uh, that's the easiest way to cut costs right it's kind of well it isn't part of the problem also that the deal was was back-ended and that the first couple of years were relatively affordable, but now yeah. we're at the point where, where the costs have escalated to being significant. And well, yeah, the, like Gary Bettman's no dummy. So he's, he structured the deal so that each year, you know, the, the cost grew because he didn't want them, you know, dividing the uh, total cost by 12 and then say, give us the, uh, you know, <laughs> average yearly cost every year no he wanted to tell his owners that our tv revenue is increasing so yeah the way it was set up is that rogers is you know they had to deal with a 20 25 million dollar increase every year well that's crazy how, how do you go to your advertisers and say i'm jacking up the rates by whatever the percentage is when the audience is shrinking yeah and the the audience they're the the uh the, the advertisers just say hey there's the door you know you you think I'm gonna pay more for less viewers get out of here so and the, uh, the result, yeah they were just they're just caught in a vice from every angle you can look at so the result is as we sit here today some of their biggest names are no longer working for them or in, or in many cases working at all yeah yeah and. Uh, I, I will say this. I mean, the, the carnage is a lot worse than I th thought it would be. I mean, I, I thought some people would pay the price, but not this many. So which one stuns you the most? Um, I would say in the first round, the whole um, bringing Ron McLean back and, and getting rid of George, that was a, a stunner. And also getting rid of Glenn Healy because he was part of their, their top team. And uh, so in that wave, and then, uh, you know, in, in the second wave, uh, I'm going to say somebody like Nick Kiprios, like who Nick became a star, uh, despite all the troubles Rogers had with Hockey Night in Canada, as far as the show itself went, Nick and probably Elliot Friedman 
they're the two guys whose star rose the most with the new version of the show, even after it went back to basically the old version when they re reinstalled Ron McClain. So, um, yeah, though, you know, losing Nick Kiprios really shocked me. I, I know a lot of people say, well, what about Don Cherry? You know what? That one didn't shock me as much because I've known Don Cherry a long, long time. And as long as I've known him, he has always said, uh, one day I'm going to go too far and that'll be it. I'll be done. And when that happens, I'm just going to say, okay, I guess that I had my time and uh, away I go. Um, and that's basically exactly what happened. And maybe he would have survived that, uh, let's say in year three, when things looked up, when the Leafs got good. But with the ratings going for another tank job and the costs escalating the way they were, plus Don, let's face it, Don, you know, I think he'd run his course in, in the biz. Um, it was pretty easy for Rogers to, uh, to, to cut him loose. Now, now you've omitted one very large name, but granted he wasn't. I always forget somebody. So. Well, you, you've dedicated a lot of work to this one person. I'm talking about Robert McCowan. Oh, Bob. You know what? Um, again, yeah, he, he was a huge name and it got let go. But you know what? His medium and himself had become less and less important over the years. So by the time he, uh, he was let go, to me, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, and you know what? I'd stop listening to him because, you know, I got tired of Bob just mailing it in. And, that, and, and that's my opinion. It's not, a, I can't state that as a fact, but in my opinion, the last four or five years, Bob was just mailing it in. He wasn't interested. And the show reflected it. And, uh, you know, I think you can tie it in. Like, if you remember, Brunt left the show. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with the fact that, and again, this is my opinion, and call it an educated guess or whatever. Certainly, you know, this this isn't anything that Stephen Brunt ever said, but I think Brunt got tired of having to carry the show along with the producers. And it was like, why should I do this? So to me, the show was getting, you know, down at the heels, kind of shop worn. And by then I'd started listening to uh, Overdrive. Um, and I still do to this day. I, I find, you know, everybody can say, yeah, those three guys are just a bunch of frat, broy, uh, frat boys and bros, but they're entertaining. And, and you know, you just, you get a laugh. Uh, I've gotten into a habit of, uh, I listen to them almost every day. So, um, so let me interrupt you for one second because you brought up something interesting to me. Uh, long time reporter, you, trend, you did the bankruptcy work in, in Phoenix, you, you, you dabbled on the business side of things, you ended up in the media game, um, you were a frequent, not just guest, but co-host uh, on primetime sports. So, so you know the business, as well as anybody else does. I think we're about to see for the first time ever, the fan lose multiple segments and or uh, book slots, if you will, to TSN. And I'm pretty sure that that's never happened before as long as they've had competition in sports in the marketplace. Not, uh, certainly not in radio. Uh, I'm only talking radio. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm no only this talking is and I'm this, only talking this is pretty much unprecedented, I think, in radio, and maybe almost in any kind of radio, because radio, for many years, was was such an ingrained habit. Like I remember talking to Brunt once about um, 
and this was for a few, one, I think the first of two features I did on McCown and why he, you know, held the ratings the way he did for so many years. And Brent pointed out, he said, radio is a habit with people. And he said to me, how, how often do you change the preset buttons on your car? I thought, yeah, when I get a new car, that's about it. And he said, yeah. And he said, when I, if you remember, Brunt went to uh, the team when they started that up to try and compete with McCown briefly. And he said, I soon realized that, you know, this was a losing cause trying to unseat Bob. But I think the way it's happened now is this, and it's, you know, this is what newspapers got caught in, is that viewing and, li and listening habits are changing as radically as, uh, as, as reading habits have. And so I listen, like, I mean, I'm an old fart. I listen to, uh, I listen to all kinds of podcasts and uh, I, I, I listen to rate to things a lot differently now than I used to. Although I will say this, I do tend to listen to uh, um, um, overdrive rather in the traditional way as it's being broadcast live. Uh, you, if you saw, if, if you knew earlier on when Overdrive first started, when they moved those guys up from Leaf's Lunch, um, you start to hear in the industry that they may not have had the ratings at first that Bob McCown had, but they were really, really doing well in people downloading their podcast. They were doing huge numbers apparently on that. And that sort of, I think, set the stage. And and that's why to me, like this is unprecedented in radio for the, you know, some upstart sports station to suddenly turn the tables on a, on a, you know, someone who had the market to themselves for years. But I think this is all part and parcel of the fact that the whole business is changing so radically and so quickly that uh, it's not as big as, as a shock, I guess, as it should be. So the and, only, the only part of the system that's not changing is the effing rating system. And we're yeah, yeah. You know what? Scott Moore used to argue to me all the time when I started doing sports media that the ratings for radio, that whole system was totally flawed. It was unrealistic. And I was a bit skeptical at first, but I got to admit, um, after, you know, reporting on it for a few years, I, yeah, he's right. He, he you know, it just doesn't take into account properly um, the, uh, the way Reality. people are listening and what they're listening to. Do you think they'll, well, I mean, ever is a long time. Uh, do you think anytime soon we'll see a different system? Uh, I'd have to say no. I mean, it, it's, I, I can't say this for sure, but I, I never got the impression Numeris, which is basically the only company doing ratings in Canada, had all that much interest in, in developing a, you know, uh, a, uh, a different system. I think maybe they thought, you know, they went, the big change for them was when they went from those old diaries that they used to hand out to people to, to write down what station they were listening to and what time to those people meter things. I guess they figured that was a radical enough change and that's that, but clearly it wasn't. And, uh, um, you know, I used to look at those, what, 0.4 ratings yeah. they give to TSN uh, even to, you know, the overdrive guys. And I used to think this can't be right because there's other evidence out there that a ton of people are listening to these guys. Correct. And, Correct. Uh, but it's just not being accounted for. So uh, yeah, it, it just, uh, the, uh, another one thing that did surprise me out of all this was how easily or how badly the fan or sports net, if you will, um, fumbled this and, and gave up, the big advantage they had 
uh, you know, they the way they got rid of McCown, and now they got this weird hybrid where Blair's got some show that that does one hour of drive time, and then it switches over to something radically different in Tim and Sid. And I kind of think, oh, Jesus, no wonder you, nobody's tuning in now. You can go over at four o'clock, overdrive starts, and you know they're there till seven, and you know what they're going to be talking about. So, and they're very entertaining. Uh, I got to admit, sometimes I find myself laughing out loud at those guys. And so, uh, yeah, and another reason I mentioned I listen to them in the traditional way every time is even though I'm retired, I tend to do a lot of work around the house. And so I knock off usually around 4.30. And that's when I'm ready to sit down, have a beer and listen. And I'll listen to the radio, mainly because I'm sitting in the hot tub. So and, and that to me is like that half hour at five o'clock when those three guys hook up with Ray Ferraro, that to me is tremendous radio. And, and if you're a hockey fan like I am, that's you know, that's something you don't want to miss. So we're gonna go rapid fire here to close things out. So quick questions, quick answers, if you can. If I so, can, I okay. so my 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 colleague Mike in Boston wants to know what your thoughts are on um members of the media reporting on the media. So, you know, you were at the Globe, how difficult was it being part of the press reporting on the press? It, yeah, it was a little awkward in some situations, but I, I firmly believe that certainly in the case, maybe not so much on print, but uh, for broadcast, that it was worth being reported on because they, there were so many people interested in them. And the interest went beyond what they were talking about, i.e. hockey. People were actually interested in these and these broadcasters as people and, uh, you know, and what was going on. There was an endless fascination for behind the scenes stuff. And I always believed that, and this definitely includes newspaper people, uh, we were all way too thin-skinned when it came to reporting on ourselves. And so I, yeah, I never, I never had a problem with it in that regard. I, I think it should be done. And besides, you know, somebody has to hold us to account. <laughs> That's usually <laughs> me. Yeah. And uh, you know, why not, why not uh, some of us for uh, let's, you know, why leave it, let somebody else do it. So I'm going to go Mike Babcock on you. Not, <laughs> not, not that you're the rookie, but who are the, uh, the, the members of the media, in your opinion, who put in the least amount of effort. The yes, least I'm, amount of effort? Yeah, and yes, I'm going to tell them that you said this. Oh, Lord. Um, I'm not, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that because I've been out of the loop for a while. Um, a lot of people would have said me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I, I think of my fellow media people generally as hardworking guys. I, well, you Bob McCown, um, he was a guy whose name would always come up in this kind of discussion because he was famous for uh, showing up five minutes to four, walking in the door, grabbing the notes from the producer. He'd sit down, do the show, and the show was always great, and then walk out the door at seven o'clock. Now, I used to be a little snotty and think, now there's a guy who makes the minimum amount of effort for the maximum amount of dollars until I actually was on his show and watched him operate. And clearly, because of his grasp of certain topics, not always hockey, I must admit, 
he had not been sitting at home by the pool doing nothing all day. He had clearly been informing himself. So, you know, and I'll, I'll say this, though, uh, as I said earlier, the last three or four years when he started mailing it in, that stopped happening. And, and I think, you know, if you want to talk about guys that were putting in the least amount of effort, yeah, he'd probably, his name would be on the list. Um, perhaps because he was distracted by his wineries, uh, which I gather haven't been going very well for him. And, uh, but you know what? I, I don't think it's a very long list, to be totally honest. All right. So will, will we hear McCowan on the airwaves again? And if so, where do you think? Well, it won't be for a lack of trying. I mean, I believe, and, and often, and I think a lot of it's because of the winery issue, which I don't think he's fixed yet. Bob needs cash, I believe. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would say as we speak, and he certainly has been saying as much on Twitter, the odd time, that he's definitely working on something. What it will be, who knows? But uh, yeah, if, if, uh, if we don't hear him again, it won't be because he wasn't trying to make it happen. Um, I'm told that uh, your wardrobe selection was uh, a hot topic on the road. Many people thinking that you were a frequent visitor to like Filene's basement down in Florida or something. Is, uh, is that true? Well, I don't know if it was a hot topic, but yeah, oh God, 25 years ago or so, I sort of accidentally got into Hawaiian shirts. And it, it happened in Pittsburgh of all places. Uh, I think it was Simmons and I, and I, I can't remember if it was during the playoffs or not. I was probably in the late 90s. We wandered into Kaufman's, which used to have a, big department store downtown and they were having a huge sale on uh I think it was on Hawaiian shirts and I bought a couple and uh that sort of started the whole thing now when you say Filene's basement I use I was a, a, a regular at Filene's basement but at the one in Boston the original the uh the real one Down and that was a sad day when that closed but I had I had sort of a rule with uh with the Hawaiian shirts I now have somewhere I'm going to say between 30 and 40. It's been a long time since I counted them all. And uh, we're in the process of cleaning out our basement. And some of them already got shipped to the, uh, <laughs> the local uh, restore. But I had a rule that I wouldn't spend more than 15 US on a shirt. And which means the vast majority of them were bought at Burlington Coat Factory. I was nice. a habitue of those. And, uh, and they're all mostly polyester. The best shirts I have are the ones my wife bought me as gifts. She, she didn't restrict herself to that. But I always thought, you know, I'm out on the road. I, I shouldn't be doing this to my family, running around spending $120 on a Tommy Bahama shirt. So <laughs> despite I, I, all those shirts, I do not own one Tommy Bahama shirt. So I was asked that I, I was told that I need to ask you about your relationship with the word relationship in quotes with David Frost and Larry Barron. Oh, Lord. Um, well, if you, you go back in the Globe archives, I wrote a story about it. And uh, yeah, that was a weird one. <laughs> um, I was asked to look into the whole David Frost situation. Uh, at that time, there were rumors of something happening to... Uh, uh, Mike, well, as he became known, Mike Danton. Uh, he was known as Mike Jefferson in those days. That, that there were rumors that something happened with his younger brother at a cottage that was, you know, frequented by Frost and his little group. And so I put out feelers to 
Frost and his group. And uh, one day I got a uh, phone call from a guy saying he was Larry Barron. And I knew Larry Barron. He, he is actually a real person. He played for, he was a teammate of uh, Sheldon Keefe and, uh, and Mike Jefferson and that group. And, uh, and he was part of Frost Circle, but this guy, Larry, and so this guy then began a dance with me that lasted nearly two years, where he was going to give me the real story on, you know, he was going to get me the exclusive interview with David Frost. And of course, with people like Frost, who was a, a player agent, you often never met them in person. You just dealt with them over the phone. And, and you know, there's a ton of player agents where I've never met them in person. I've just, because uh, they, they don't always show up at Leaf games and that, especially not if they're working in the U.S. somewhere. And you just deal with them over the phone. And so I came to, like this guy, Larry Barron, would phone me from time to time. And it was always dangling the carrot of this uh, exclusive interview. And of course, he was telling me all kinds of scandalous stuff about the Jefferson family and, and how, you know, it wasn't really what it seemed. And, and they were actually the bad people in this. And of course, that all turned out to be nonsense. But uh, yeah, and then one day, David Frost decided to give an on-air interview to Bill Waters when Bill Waters had his show on 640. And as soon as I heard Frost open his mouth, I just about fainted. It was the guy, that boy, because he has a very distinctive raspy voice. And it was the guy, same voice as the guy holding himself out to be Larry Barron to me. So in the wow. end, uh, all I ever got out of that was a, a long and I guess some people found it quite interesting uh, feature on how he had, uh, you know, misrepresented himself to me for over a year. And then subsequently, I found out from some fellow reporters that I wasn't the only person he'd done that to. Apparently, he had a regular habit of doing this, calling himself, Larry Barron was one of his favorite aliases. And, uh, and there was someone else, I forget who, but uh, yeah. So that's, that's the story of my great relationship with David Frost and, and Larry Barron. And to this day, I've still never talked to the real Larry Barron. <laughs> if who I think is still running a hockey school in California. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I genuinely appreciate your time. This has been really fun. Um, hoping we can do it again. There will always be big news stories. And, and while you are toiling either in the basement, cleaning things out, buying Hawaiian shirts or at a comedy club, uh, your perspective is always relevant and uh, love to hear what you think of what's going on. So I'm hoping we can have you back again. Hey, as long as you're interested in whatever I got to say, I'm willing to say it. Well, I will tell you that uh, friend of the show and, and frequent guest, Steve McAllister, uh, who was at one point your boss, I believe. Yes, he was. Had very nice things to say, and I will quote him. I don't think David gets enough props for being a top-notch reporter. He did a lot of great work over the years, especially on financial sagas like the Arizona Coyotes. Geez, I wish I'd known Steve thought that when he was my boss. I might have got a few raises out of him. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I really thank you for your time. This has been a lot of fun uh, and very interesting. I have a ton more questions that I've been writing down, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Sure thing, Jonah, and you're welcome. All right. That's it for okay, this time. We'll see, you. Always, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Believe in the Press Row. Don't forget you can download our shows on all of your podcast uh, choices and uh, we'll be back with you soon.